morning. It's great to see everybody this morning. I want you to go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2. If you are new with us, we are in a teaching series through the book of Revelation. Uh, this is what we typically do at Freedom. We teach through books of the Bible. And so we started Revelation uh, three or four weeks ago, and we will continue teaching through this book uh, until we finish. And so I have no idea how long it's going to take, uh, but it'll take until we're done. And so that's kind of the way we roll around here. So, uh, uh, but we're excited that you're with us. And so if you're, if you're in the book of Revelation, many of you may have been scared of this book or frightened by this book. And you're going, man, all this symbolism and all these this confusing things that are happening, how do we understand this book? And that is why we are teaching through the book verse by verse and chapter by chapter so that we can understand what John, the Apostle John, was writing in the context in which he was writing it. Because we believe that a text without a context is a pretext. And so we want to understand Scripture in the context that it was written. And so we are in the middle of this, or in the beginnings of this book, chapter 2, and uh, this book was written to seven churches. Seven real, actual, literal churches in Asia Minor that the Apostle John wrote, and he was addressing real needs. He was addressing real things that were going on in their lives. But these churches also represent the church throughout the ages. It addresses situations that you and I as followers of Christ face today. And what I love about these in chapters 2 and 3 is it, is it has Jesus addressing these churches with seven specific messages for each church. What I love about this passage and this part of Revelation is it pictures the church in every age. And it shows us a church that is holy, but still imperfect. It gives us a picture of a church that is characterized by both faithfulness and shortcoming. Aren't you grateful for that? Because doesn't that just kind of describe our church? We're holy and yet we fall short sometimes. That we are faithful and yet imperfect. Doesn't that describe our own lives as well? That there are times where, where I'm walking and living in holiness and other times I'm falling short. And that's the picture we see in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see a pattern that occurs in each and every one of these letters, in each and every one of these messages, there's a pattern that occurs uh, as, as, as John writes this. And the first one is a command to write. Each one of these letters begins, write to the church or to the angel in the church in fill in the blank. This is whatever city or town this letter is going to. That's always in every one of these letters followed by a characteristic of Jesus Christ. It gives us a picture of who Christ is based on what we learned in Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. John is just repeating those characteristics of who Christ is. But here's the interesting part. Those characteristics are tied to the church's specific struggle. Whatever that church is facing, the characteristic of Christ is meeting that need head on. Isn't that good news? And we're going to see, as Christ meets the needs of these church, churches, it is based upon who He is. 
That's followed by an assessment of their spiritual condition. Jesus addresses the spiritual condition of each and every church, and he says in each and every one of these messages, he says, I know. I know. I know what you're going through. I know what you're facing. I know what you're getting right. I even know what you're getting wrong. And Jesus is implying that, listen, I am with my church. It goes back to Revelation 1, verse 20, where he says that he is standing among the seven lampstands, which represents the seven churches. In other words, Jesus is right in the midst of his church. That he's never left us and he will never forsake us. The implication here is that Christ knows what you and I are going through. And as he, as he assessed the spiritual condition of each church, he shows both a commendation of what they're getting right, as well as a correction or, or a rebuke for what they, need to get, what they need to fix. And this happens in each of these letters. And each of these letters are followed by a promise of future hope and victory in Christ. What happens at the end of each one of these letters is that Jesus points to the end of this book, to the end of Revelation, chapters 19 through 22, and he shows us the victory that we're going to have when Christ returns. And so as we walk through chapters 2 and 3, I want you to keep this pattern in mind. There's a command to write, based a characteristic of Jesus tied to the church's struggle, an assessment of their spiritual condition, followed by a promise of future hope in Christ. But here's the reality. Each one of these letters were written to a specific church based on what they were facing. And they conclude with, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's the reality. All churches must listen to all letters, all of these messages, because each message speaks to every church throughout every age. Each one of these messages that we read about speak to each and every church in every age. It's not like we can say, oh, well, Freedom, we're a Ephesus church or we're a Smyrna church. No, the reality is that, that these characteristics, these struggles, and these victories that each one of these churches have are evident in our own church. Just as Johnny talked about last week in the church in Ephesus, there are some of us who know the right things. We believe the right doctrine. We're even doing the right things, but yet we're not doing it out of a love for Christ. And that's true of us. That's true of me at times. So not only is it true of our church corporately, it's also true of us as individual Christians, isn't it? Has there ever been a time in your life where you've done the right thing and believed the right thing but did it for the wrong reason? Just me? No, okay, good. At least we're, we're here. We're away. Good. Now, we've all been there. And we're going to see in each one of these seven churches characteristics of our own lives that are evident in these churches. So the problems and the victories that these first century churches had are the same problems and the victories that you and I face today. So today, we're going to look at the second church, the church in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was about 40 miles from Ephesus. It was a large commercial and, and cultural center. 
You may not know this, but it was the birthplace of Homer, the Greek poet. It's now the modern-day city of Izmir, Turkey. But Smyrna was known for its architecture. Smyrna, Smyrna was known for building buildings with these huge square stone marble blocks. And they built stadiums for the Olympic Games. They had a great music hall and public library. Smyrna had the largest outdoor theater in all of Asia Minor. But Smyrna was also a pagan city. Smyrna had temples to many Greek gods, including Zeus and Apollo and Nemesis and Aphrodite. But Smyrna was also a city that worshipped Caesar as a god. Imperial worship was a huge part of the culture in Smyrna. They would worship the Roman emperor, Caesar, as if he were a god. So given Smyrna's commitment to Rome, and given Smyrna's commitment to imperial worship, the church in Smyrna was particularly vulnerable to persecution and hostility. The church in Smyrna faced immense persecution because of the city that they lived in. But this is nothing new, is it? Suffering, persecution, even martyrdom has always been the calling of the church. It's always been an aspect of the church throughout her entire history. In fact, in AD 197, Tertullian said this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was true then, and it's true today. You may not know this, but right now, 365 million Christians live in cities and countries where they face immense persecution. In fact, in 2023 alone, there was an increase in violent attacks towards Christians, specifically towards followers of Christ. And we don't know the exact numbers, but I read where it's estimated somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 Christians were killed in 2023 specifically for their faith. And over 15,000 churches, Christian churches, Christian hospitals, and Christian schools were targeted for attack. See, what Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, was true then and it is true today. And in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, it is applicable to us just as it was to the church in Smyrna. Suffering, persecution, martyrdom are just a normal part of the life of a church. So let's read what Jesus writes to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt 
by the second death. So Smyrna receives the shortest of Jesus' seven messages. This is the shortest message that Jesus writes to his church. And this is, this is a letter, and it's short because there's no rebuke. There's no correction for the church in Smyrna. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you guys, you need to fix this. It's not mentioned in this book, in, the, in this letter to them. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen, I know you're facing persecution. I know you're experiencing suffering, but get ready. It's about to get worse. Encouraging, right? I know some of you are like, yay, so glad I came to church today. Well, just get ready. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But that's what's happening in the church in Smyrna. He's saying, listen, I know you're already persecuted. I know you're already suffering, but it's going to get worse. But I love this. Before he even warns them of that, what Jesus does, he reminds them of who he is. Look at verse 8 again. He says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Let's stop right there just for a second. When we see that, when he says angel, that Greek word for angel also means messenger. So really the implication of this is it's not some heavenly angel that's reading this letter to the church. It's really more like the pastors or the elders or the bishops of those churches would, would read those letters to the church. So this, this letter was sent to more than likely the pastor or the bishop, the leader of that church, so the messenger is what, what John is talking about. And so he says, To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So I love this. What Jesus is doing is he's showing them and he's telling them who he is. He says, first and foremost, I am the eternal God. I am the eternal and sovereign God. I am the one who was, who is the first and the last. I am the one who, who has overcome. So he says, I am eternal and I am sovereign. He says, first and the last, the protos and the eschatos. Those are titles used of God in Isaiah 44 and 48. So John is pointing back and saying, listen, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and, for, and tomorrow. He's not unchanging. He's eternal. The emphasis is on the fact that God is eternal, that he is sovereign. In other words, Jesus is Lord over all of history. And Jesus will have the last word. He is the first and the last. Jesus is telling his church, I am aware of what you're going through. Nothing that you're facing has caught me off guard. Nothing that you're facing has surprised me. I know exactly what's happening. I know exactly what you're facing. I know exactly what you're going through. I know your situation right now. And I am God and you can trust me today and you can trust me tomorrow. Isn't that good news for us? Think about it, church. God knows exactly what you're facing right now. God knows exactly what you're going through right now. He's not caught off by the circumstances in your life. He's not caught off guard by the situations that you're facing. He's not, he's not surprised by your struggles, by your tribulations, by your difficulties. 
None of that has surprised him. None of that has caught him off guard. And therefore, you and I can trust him today and we can trust him tomorrow. So Jesus says, I am the eternal God. But also he says, I am the resurrected Lord. Jesus is reminding them of the one who was dead and came to life. He's pointing them to the cross. He said, hey guys, remember what I did on the cross. I died in your place. But the grave could not hold me. I have overcome the grave. Death, where is your sting? I am alive today. And Jesus is reminding him of that. He's saying, listen, I have walked this road. I love this. He's saying, listen, I have walked the road that you're walking. I have been persecuted. I have been slandered. I have been arrested and, and imprisoned. And I have been put to death. But I am alive today. I am resurrected. And I am alive. I have conquered Folks, that should be encouraging to us. It should encourage you and I not to lose heart. Listen, when we face suffering, persecution, or tribulation, we should not lose heart. Why? Because to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We should have no fear of death. We should have no fear of suffering. We should have no fear of persecution. Why? Because just as Christ lives today, we too shall live. We too shall spend eternity alive and well with Him. And in the end, we will be victorious. And then John goes on to, to talk about this church and to give specific things that they're going through. Look at verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus is talking about this church in Smyrna. And on the outside looking in, the church in Smyrna was weak and it was poor. They didn't have the prestige of Ephesus. They didn't have the prosperity of Laodicea. But looks can be, be deceiving, can't they? Jesus says, though you look poor, though you look weak, you're rich. You may not have much materially, but spiritually, you have everything. They were rich in their faithfulness to Christ. They were rich in their commitment to Christ. They were rich in their love for Christ. Wouldn't you love to have that described as you? That you're rich in your faith? in your devotion, in your commitment to Christ. They had faithfulness in the midst of adversity. <coughs> the Christians in Smyrna remained faithful to Christ despite the intense persecution that they were facing. The Christians in Smyrna were living for and following Jesus, knowing that it may cost them their lives. <coughs> but here's the reality. These Christians in Smyrna paid a heavy price to follow Jesus. Jesus says, I know your difficulty. I know you're going to be slandered. I know you're going to be materially poor. I know you're going to suffer. But this church endured. They pressed on. Even though they faced economic and social opposition. Even though they were ostracized by the society. 
We know from history that the church in Smyrna was slandered and accused of cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper. The pagans in that city said, you drink his blood and eat his body. Not realizing it was a representation and not actual blood and body. So they were accused of being cannibals. But not only that, we know from history they were accused of being anti-family. Because faith divided families in that pagan city. They were accused of being atheists. This is, a, this is crazy. You know why they were accused of being atheists? Because they had no visible idol. In this pagan city, everybody had an idol. Except for the Christians. And they were accused of being atheists. They were accused of being politically disloyal. Why? Because they claimed that Jesus is Lord. But Jesus commends them for their faithfulness. He commends them for their, their faithfulness. And, and, and He reminds you and I that living for and following Jesus requires sacrifice. Living for and following Jesus requires a willingness to place His kingdom above our own. Listen, if you and I want to follow Christ, His kingdom has to be first. Not my kingdom, not your kingdom, but His kingdom. That means our careers, our families, our financial prosperity, our very lives are submitted to Him and His kingdom. But let me tell you, church, He's well worth it. He's well worth it. Now this flies in the face of the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? Think about that false teaching that says, if you lack health, and if you lack wealth, that means you lack faith. Does it sound like the church in Smyrna lacked faith? So we can talk, guys. We can have a conversation. <laughs> Does it sound like the church in Smyrna lacked faith? No. No. no what, what, they were losing their lives, their health, they had lost financially. They were poor. Not because they lacked faith, but because of their faith. That's why they were suffering. Because of faith. And ultimately, John tells them, listen, Satan is your real enemy. You're suffering because of your faith, but Satan is your real enemy. Look what he says. He says, "You, but these people, they're, they're Jews... But they're not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. He's reminding them that, listen, though the Jews and the Romans are persecuting you, though they're the ones that are causing the, the, the suffering, it's really the devil that is your adversary. It really is the devil that is your accuser. It reminds us of what Paul said to the church in, in, in Ephesians, in Ephesus. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Listen, as you and I face persecution, as we suffer, it's not the person that's causing the suffer. We have a neighbor that rejects us. They're not rejecting us, they're rejecting Christ. And they're doing so because they've been blinded by the enemy. And so... John is reminding the church of who their actual enemy is. It's not other people. Our enemy 
is the devil, which is what John shows us. And so when we put all this together and we think about this as a whole, it should remind us or, 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 or have us begin to question, am I willing to sacrifice for the sake of following Christ? Am I willing to lay down my kingdom for the sake of serving His? Am I willing to go through persecution and suffering and difficulties to follow Jesus? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Eric, this is America. This nation was founded as a Christian nation. We don't, we don't really have to be concerned for what Smyrna was going through. We don't really have to be concerned for any of that. Listen, while our nation was indeed founded on the morals of Christianity, once you take Christianity and God out of the foundation of our laws, everything begins to crumble. And that is exactly what we've done as a nation. We've taken God out, who is the foundation. So if that's the case, then where does morality come from? If there is no foundation, there is no morality. And the foundation of, that our morality is built on is Christ. It's built on the Ten Commandments. And once we say the Ten Commandments are irrelevant, then everything else begins to fall and to crumble. And so here's what we need to listen to. I, I believe that those of us in the West, specifically the church in America, are not ready. We're not ready. We're not prepared. Once hardship comes, we're going to see the church in America fall off like crazy. It's still reported that almost one-third of the people that attended church before COVID have never come back. And that's COVID. That's a cough. I know it killed people. I'm not downplaying it. But the reality is, that's nothing compared to, to actually being persecuted for your faith, is it? There was no persecution for faith. It was just, we in America can't take difficulties. We as Christians in America don't like suffering. We don't like the idea that life following Christ is hard. We want to believe that life following Jesus is easy. We want to believe that life following Jesus means we're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. We don't want to think about the fact that following Jesus may require our death. And I know some of you are going, well, I'm really glad I came to church now. But I say this, church, because we must be prepared. We must be ready. Just like the church in Smyrna, those that oppose and reject Christ will one day oppose and persecute us. And I know you're going, what? Eric, seriously, okay, I, I get it. There's 365 million Christians persecuted worldwide. But we're still in America. Let me ask you this. Did you realize that as a follower of Jesus, you are already called bigoted, dangerous, and a threat? Have you ever thought about that? You are slandered right now as a follower of Jesus. If you stand up for Christian morals, you are slandered as anti-choice, anti-LGBTQ, anti-inclusion, and anti-tolerance. Already, if you want to stand up for, those, for the morality of the Scripture, 
then that's the label that you are. You're already slandered. And I believe we can anticipate a future, church, when there will be economic boycotts, there will be governmental restrictions, and there will be social ostracism just for following Christ. You're going to say, no, Eric, no, come on. It's already happening. Anybody remember Jack Phillips? He was a baker in Colorado who refused to bake a cake for a same-sex marriage. He was sued, and in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled in his favor. What you may not know is that he is in court now in 2023. And in 2023, he lost his appeal in the Colorado Appellate Court. Why? Because he refused to make a cake for a transgender reveal. A, sec, a, a gender reveal cake for, for transgender. He said, I can't do that morally because of my convictions that God created us male and female. And though he won his case in 2012, he's now facing another court battle. And we say this can never happen to us? Listen, there, there are few places that Christians will not pay the price for their faith. Think about this. Simply reading the Bible's moral teaching on sexuality, on marriage, on life, on anything is now considered hate speech. We must be ready. We must be prepared. And it begs the question again, church, are we willing to sacrifice to follow Jesus? Are we willing to place His kingdom above our own? Are we willing to place our career, prosperity, our family, our livelihood, everything in submission to His kingdom? I know some of you may not be convinced. You may say, Eric, this is still America. I don't get it. Here's what Paul told Timothy. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ. That Greek word for all means all. It means everybody. Everybody. You want to you live a godly life. What does he say? You will be persecuted. Now, so far... This has been an incredibly encouraging message. <laughs> I know some of you are like, okay, goodness gracious, how long is it going to last? Ready for lunch. At least I can be happy at lunch. But here, here's what I want you to know. Jesus begins to encourage this church. He begins to encourage them and begins to, to speak into them. And I want to end on that encouragement, not on what we've talked about so far. <laughs> Because the church needs encouragement, don't we? If we're going to face persecution for living holy lives, we, we need encouragement. And that's exactly what Jesus does. But here's what I want you to see. The encouragement Jesus gives is grounded in the person of Christ. It is grounded in Him. It is grounded in who He is and His promises to His church. Look at verse 10. I love this. So he's already said, listen, you are going to face tribulation. I know your tribulation. I know your problem. What does he say? Do not what? Fear. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to face. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let's stop right there. So Jesus says, listen, fear not. Even though more tribulation is coming, even though more suffering is going to happen, do not fear. You have nothing to fear. Why do we have nothing to fear, church? Because of who Christ is. Go back to what he said at the beginning. I am the first and the last. In other words, I'm sovereign over all of the things you're facing. None of this is surprising me. I am the first and the last. But he also promises victory and hope. He says, I will give you a crown of life. Why? Because I died and I've come to life. I'm alive today. For those of us who know Christ, the, the grave is the gateway into our eternal glory. And because of that, the Apostle John says, do not lose hope. Do not fear. Why? Because in this light and momentary affliction, Paul writes, all the things that we're facing, all the suffering, all the difficulties, all the persecution, all the trials, Paul calls them light and momentary afflictions. I'm like, Paul, you don't know what I'm going through, buddy. What I'm facing right now doesn't feel like light and momentary afflictions. Anybody relate? It feels like a heavy weight. It feels like I'm being crushed. So Paul says, no, all this in light of eternity is light and momentary afflictions. But what are they doing? They're preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. They're preparing us for the glorious victory that we have in Christ. They're preparing us for what is beyond all comprehension. We can't even comprehend the glory of what it's going to be like when we see Jesus face to face. So John is saying, listen, church, take courage. Do not fear. Because the glory, the eternal glory awaits you. But he also says here, I love this, he, John reminds him, listen, this suffering is not going to last forever. He, he says it's going to be 10 days. That's not a literal 10 days, that's symbolic. It's symbolic for a short period of time. Like if you know that you have something coming up in 10 days, you're like, okay, it's coming. It's soon. Like when you guys get ready to get married and it's 10 days out, you're going to be going, oh my gosh, it's 10 days out. <laughs> like right now, you're going, oh, it's several months out. But when it gets down to 10 days, you're like, oh, that's short. That's, a, that's just a little over a week, right? And so what Jesus is doing here, he's showing him, guys, the suffering you're going to face, the difficulties you're going to face are going to be limited. They're going to be a short period of time in light of all of eternity. And rather than being afraid, I want you to be comforted. I want you to be comforted in knowing the one who knows all things. I want you to find peace in the fact that I'm calling you to hold on to me, Jesus Christ. Press on in good works. Persevere in your faith and endure until the end. Why? Because in the end, we receive a great reward. It's the reward at the end that we're longing for. Go back to verse 10, the end of verse 10. Listen to this reward he talks about. He says, be faithful unto death, 
and I will give you what? The crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You see, church, what, what really matters is what comes after death. What happens to us after we physically die is what matters the most. That's what really, really matters. And what Jesus says, that if you are a follower of his, you know what awaits you? A crown of life. The crown of life awaits those of us who are committed to Christ. Those of us who endure persecution. Those of us who remain faithful. Jesus says you will receive the crown of life. Now the crown of life is just another way to say eternal life. In other words, we will spend our entire eternity in a life full of joy and pleasure, honor and victory. A life free from suffering and free from pain and free from tears. And that is available for all who persevere. For all who follow Christ. Then he goes on to say it's even better than that. As if eternal life wasn't enough. He says, not only that, you're going to overcome the second death. You don't have to worry about the second death. Because here's what Jesus is saying. There is something far worse than persecution, than suffering, than physical death awaiting those who reject Christ. Something far worse than that, and Jesus calls it the second death. What is that? That is another way to describe hell. This eternal separation from God. But he goes, listen, as you, as my followers, even though you face suffering, and even though you may be put to death for your faith, you will never be separated from me. You will never have to face or experience the second death. And that should give us hope. That should encourage us. That should fill us with, with, with confidence, knowing that our victory in Christ is secure. And it was the same assurance that led Polycarp of Smyrna to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. See, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was also a personal disciple of the Apostle John. The same John that wrote Revelation. Polycarp was bishop, which basically just means pastor. He was the shepherd over this church in Smyrna. And in AD 154, Polycarp was arrested. He was an old man, close to somewhere between 90 and 100 years old when he was arrested. And he was arrested roughly around 60 years after this letter to the church in Smyrna was written. And Polycarp was arrested, he was tried, and he was sentenced to death. Why? Because he refused to worship Caesar. He refused to say that Caesar is Lord. So roughly around 100 years old, makes Polycarp somewhere around 27-ish, 
when this letter, when the book of Revelation was written and circulated to the churches throughout Asia Minor. In fact, as a pastor or bishop of this church, it is possible, if not probable, that Polycarp was the one who read this letter to the church. Now, Polycarp was a very endeared person in Smyrna. In fact, so much so that the pagan chief of police, a guy named Herod, and his father, a guy named Nicetus, came to Polycarp begging him, begging him, and trying to persuade him to save his life. They came to Polycarp and said, listen, you have loved these people for so many years. You have shepherded these people for so many years. Why would you die when all you have to do is say that Caesar is Lord? And they said to Polycarp, Why, what harm is there to say Lord Caesar? No doubt these words came through Polycarp's mind. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Polycarp, remembering those words and remembering the promise of the crown of life, said this, 86 years I have served Christ, and He never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and Savior? And with those words, and with that refusal to say Caesar is Lord, Polycarp was executed in the city square by public burning. But Polycarp remained faithful to the end. He remained faithful and certain of the promised crown of life that awaited him on the other side of this life. Because Polycarp knew that what happens after death is what really matters. In this passage, these words to the church in Smyrna are just as relevant to us today as they were to Polycarp and to the first century church. First and foremost, it's an invitation to life. It's an invitation to eternal life. It's an invitation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's an invitation to place your faith and trust in Him and receive that crown of life when we pass on from this life into the next. But it's also a call to endurance. It's a call to remain faithful. It's a call to persevere, to endure, no matter what we're facing. It's also a Invitation to rest in God's promises, knowing that God is faithful, knowing that God always keeps his promises, and he will reward those with the crown of life who remain steadfast. And finally, I think it's an encouragement to pray for strength. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what suffering or challenges or persecution we may face for our faith. That is why we must prepare ourselves today and pray and ask God for strength today 
so that when the time comes, we can say like Polycarp, I have served Christ. He never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? Let's pray. I want to close our time a little bit different than what we normally do. I want to give you an opportunity just to, to pray and to, to seek how God is leading in the, in the midst of this message and, and pray and begin to ask Him for strength. Just right there where you're seated, right now, I just want, to, I want you to begin to pray. Ask the Lord to give you strength. Listen, I don't know what you're going to face. I don't know what any of us are going to face. But Christ does. He is the first and the last. He is sovereign. And He is Lord over all. So just begin to pray for His strength. Pray that he would give you courage to stand up for your faith. I don't agree anything like me. Sometimes it's hard to stand up and just start a conversation with a neighbor, much less in the midst of facing persecution to share my faith. Let's pray and ask Jesus to give us courage. Ask him to help us persevere whether you're facing persecution or suffering or trials or difficulties, knowing that no matter what life is thrown at you, Jesus is still the first and the last. He's the one who died and came to life. And this message to the church in Smyrna is the message for us. If you're here this morning, you've never received Christ. Right there at your seat, just... Begin to pray and ask Him to help you place your faith and trust in Him. To surrender your kingdom to His kingdom. Your will to His will. Pray for endurance. That He would give you strength to be faithful. Persevere in your faith. To endure no matter what you face. And finally, let's rest in His promises. Thank you. Thank Him for His promises. Thank Him that He is always faithful and that He will always keep His promises. And we can rest assured that the crown of life awaits all of us who are committed and follow Him. Jesus, we thank You. Thank You for this word that You gave to the church in Smyrna. And it is a word that is just as applicable to us today. Jesus, you are all that we need. And like the church in Smyrna that was by all appearances poor and weak, yet Jesus, you called them strong and rich. Why? Simply because they were faithful to you. They were committed to you. And Lord, I fear that oftentimes in our lives we may look rich and wealthy in, in the eyes of the world. It may look like we have everything together. And yet, if we're not committed and faithful to you, we have nothing. 
So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remain faithful, to remain steadfast, to endure, to press on in our faith, no matter what we face, no matter what challenges come our way, that we would be yielded and surrendered to your, to you and to your kingdom. And we pray, Father, that your will be done, that your kingdom would come here on earth, in our lives, just as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, who is all that we need. Amen.